0: Hello, I'm Benjamin Dixon host of the Benjamin Dixon show and I'm filling in for the conversation where TYT brings you interviews with political and cultural thought leaders. Joining us now is none other than Professor Eddie S Glaude. He is a renowned author, academic and public intellectual. He is a professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. He's author of Democracy and Black and now the New York Times bestseller Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. Professor Glaude, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It is such a pleasure to be here with you, Brother Benjamin. It's a a delight to see you in that chair, Doc.
0: (laughs) <laughs> it's a it's a delight to speak with you i had a chance to i think the first time i interviewed you was uh with your book uh democracy in black and it, it was a profound reading at the time and and if i could chase a little clout for a second i'd like to say that i was uh one of the first people to actually read this uh uh before it even went to print uh begin again and, and it, it is and i only reason i say that is because i actually got a chance to read all of it and it is a profound work and, and it's so much more than we could go over in these 11 minutes that we have. But could you contextualize your book and why it's so important for the moment that we are in, especially for an audience that is progressive and that is facing choices between someone like Donald Trump and then someone that may not be as progressive as they would like.
1: Yeah, so you know we're in a moment of moral reckoning. It's a moment in which the nation confronts whether or not it's going to be otherwise or whether or not it's going to double down on its, on its ugliness. And in these kinds of moments of reckoning, um, you know, uh, we have to make a choice. We have to risk. There's no in between. And so, what I wanted to do uh, in this particular book is to kind of grapple with my own despair, my own rage and disillusionment, to find resources uh, to push the boulder up the hill again, to try to figure out how, in some ways, to risk everything uh, for for a new America. And so it was in my reading of, of James Baldwin and in kind of dealing with his own moment of betrayal, yeah. his own sense of despair and disillusionment. Um, and I found resources in what what Jimmy called his ruin and rubble uh, to begin again. And one of the things that I do know is this: you know, Baldwin faced the moment um, in 1979, 1980, the, that 1980 election between Jimmy Carter and and Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan for many black activists was as bad as George Wallace. Mm. But Jimmy Carter for many had also betrayed black communities. And Baldwin gave me some wisdom in that moment. He said that for black folk, you know, we risked everything just to, to acquire some modicum of, of freedom in this country and to vote. And we found out we didn't have much to vote for. Sometimes voting is just to buy ourselves some time. Mm. And maybe that's what we need to do in this moment, as we risk everything to give birth to a new America.
0: I love the way you frame that, right? Uh, particularly pushing the boulder back up the hill, uh, Sisyphus, and and the the this, the feeling and the sensation that it's hopeless and that we're doing the same thing over and over again. But then your title addresses it almost in a positive. Uh, affirmative way. Don't just feel deluded or feel bad because you're having to start again, but begin again and take this opportunity to do something new that you didn't with the last uh, opportunity. Here, my my question is is with the disillusionment that you point out that you explore with James Baldwin uh, in the later years of his life and the disillusionment that you face, how do we find the hope to actually fight this same fight again and go back up that hill yet again?
1: You know, there's a wonderful phrase or line that Baldwin used in 1970 in an interview in Ebony uh, uh, while he was in Istanbul. He said, "Hope is invented every day, mm. right? Hope is invented every day." And you know, in order to make sense of that formulation, you have to understand the absurdity of one's condition. What does it mean to imagine hope in order just to get up in the morning, right? Because in in some ways um, if we refuse to get up, then we've conceded, we've lost. And wherever human beings are, at least I believe this, wherever human beings are, we have a chance. Mm. Uh, even though we're disasters, but we're also miracles at the same time as Baldwin says. So part of what we have to do, I think, is tell the truth. Yeah. Tell the truth about who we are, what we've done, so that we can open ourselves up as a nation to be, to be otherwise. We gotta tell the truth about our lies. We gotta tell the truth about the greed and narcissism and selfishness that reigns. We gotta tell the truth of the barbarity and cruelty that follows and flows from white supremacy. We can't, we can't, um, we can't uh, shall we say, uh, uh, um, how can I put this, Ben, we can't sugarcoat it.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're
1: gonna have to confront the lies for what they are yeah. in order to release us into a different kind of America. But it's gonna be hard because the ghosts still haunt.
0: So, in our renewal, in our daily renewal, the critical thing is to address the things in this loop that we didn't address in the last loop. I'm feeling some of that in there.
1: Right. You know, I mean, we have a chance. I mean, this is our moment. Yeah. This is not the mid 20th century. This is not, you know, the era of reconstruction. Those are the two prior moments where the country faced at least two moments where the country faced a moral reckoning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it doubled down on its ugliness in the face of radical reconstruction, what do we get? We got Jim Crow, we got got convict leasing in the face of the black freedom struggle of the mid 20th century, what do we get? We got calls for law and order, and we got the tax revolt in California, which shredded the social safety net. In both of those instances, when the nation was really trying to imagine itself as a genuinely multiracial democracy, it doubled down on white supremacy. And yeah. double down on this belief that white people matter more than others. Yeah. We're in a moment where we have a chance with the public lynching of George Floyd, with the, with COVID-19 disrupting everything, we have a chance. And so the question becomes, what will we do? Will we, will we reach for a different America? Or will we double down on the ugliness of white supremacy? And we're already hearing it now from Trump and his culture wars and the like.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the thoughtfulness and the time that you put into this, into this text, into this book, and weaving the, a narrative that is so applicable to today. I also like what you just said recently in The, in the Atlantic. You said in the midst of a moral reckoning, the very opening line <laughs> of this piece, you said in the midst of a moral reckoning, America needs a third founding. In the, it, while your book speaks of hopefulness, This is a revolutionary statement. This is a statement that it should and could be seen as a threat to this ruling order. This neoliberal economic order and this militaristic empire. There's a reckoning that has to happen. Speak about the revolutionary side of your thinking process that transcends or rather is built on that hope.
1: Yeah, we can't tinker around the edges. If we tinker Mm. around the edges, we're going to reproduce the same frame. We got to get out of this Reagan frame. We have to get out of this neoliberal frame. We have to imagine a more just America where the color of your skin, where your zip code, who you love doesn't determine whether or not you have access to the good life. We have to disrupt this idea that white people matter more than others and how advantage and disadvantage are distributed along the lines of the color of one's skin. If we're going to imagine America anew. We have to finally leave behind the serpent wrapped around the legs upon which the, of the table upon which the Declaration of Independence was signed. But every single time we've had an opportunity to reimagine America, the umbilical cord of white supremacy has been wrapped around the throat of debate. We have to be different midwives. We have to begin again, we can't tinker around the edges, Doc.
0: In these last few minutes, I, could you help explore briefly? Um, you spent a lot of time with James Baldwin. Uh, you even started to reference him as Jimmy—a uh, real film. familiarity uh, with him. And and the, what I know of Jimmy Baldwin is that he understood the direct connection between white supremacy in this country and exploitative capitalism. He understood that the the fight was almost inseparable. Could you help the audience understand why it's critical as we fight against uh, this exploitative capitalism that we have to confront? Front, white supremacy at the same time.
1: Oh, Absolutely, we know we have a phrase called racial capitalism. We have to understand that the modern world came into being as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. We have to understand the source, the source of profit that slavery provided for the country and the discourses that, that surround it. In other words, the very idea of capital is bound up with black bodies seen as capital we have to understand what it means for black women's wombs to be sites of capital accumulation. If we don't understand the relationship between white supremacy and capitalism, we won't understand what's happening in Latin America. We won't understand what's happening in in Africa, in the Caribbean. Race is at the heart of the modern world. It's at the heart of the way in which capital has moved to exploit labor, to extract resources. And if you ignore that, then you are in some significant way complicit in maintaining a regime that values white bodies more than they do black bodies. And we have to disrupt it all if we're going to imagine what Jimmy called a new Jerusalem.
0: Church said amen. <laughs> but <laughs> Professor Glad, it is always a pleasure. Uh, professor Glad is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. He's the author of Democracy in Black, and I encourage everyone to pick up Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for our own. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor.
1: Thank you, Doc, appreciate it. Take care and everybody stay safe.
0: You too now, we'll be back right after this. Welcome back. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show, filling in for the conversation. Joining us now is Dr. Carl Hart. He is a chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University, and his most recent book, High Price: A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything You Know About Drugs and Society. Dr. Hart, thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me. Just one correction: I'm no longer the chair of psychology. That mm-hmm. I'm no longer playing that slave role so I'm free. Oh Okay, absolutely, and noted.
0: But we do definitely thank you for joining us for this conversation. To have a dive into something that you have written extensively about. And I read your most recent piece in the New York Times specifically about George Floyd and the vilification of him particularly using the narrative of drugs. And how that is something that is pervasive when it comes to black lives being murdered by police officers. Could you just kind of, tell us about your experience and how it intersects precisely at that intersection and how it's so relevant in this moment.
2: Um, So let's take a step back. So one of the things I do is that for my research, I study drugs in people. So I bring people into the laboratory and we give them drugs like methamphetamine, crack cocaine, marijuana, you name it. In order to have a scientific database on what these drugs do, Or don't do uh, to people, and also to help uh, treatment efforts. uh, So we know how best to block their effects and all of that sort of thing. So um, I have uh, published quite extensively in the scientific literature on what drugs do and what they don't do. Mm -hmm. And much of what we believe in society about drugs is just myth. And when we think about drug myths, we have to go back to uh, the 19th century, uh, early 20th century, uh, when we started passing laws to restrict drugs like yeah. cocaine and marijuana and those kind of things, and the myth that were used in order to get legislation to restrict these drugs in only certain populations primarily, were filled with lies specifically about black people. In some cases, Chinese people, in some cases, Mexican Americans. And so that's the context in which we're dealing when we hear police saying things about drugs and uh, suspects.
0: Mm, mm. And so you're you're speaking from a context of a sci- scientist who studies this and you know the effects and so you are seeing the narrative that is often woven around these things and how it attaches itself not to scientific evidence but to a narrative that's consistent since the late 19th century early 20th, 20th century.
2: Yeah, let's just be clear that it, it, it's a narrative that attaches itself to white supremacy and racism in America. That's just, We just have to be absolutely clear about that. Yeah. Uh, so when we think about uh, cocaine, uh, opioids, they are illegal in this country, not because of their pharmacology, but because of our hatred of black people and Chinese people. Uh, that's why they're illegal.
0: I was reading your piece in the New York Times. Uh, and you opened out pretty convincingly you said, my heart sank when I read the prosecutor's criminal complaint against Jarek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who was charged with killing George Floyd. It suggests that drugs were one factor contributing to his death. Not again, I thought. I have seen the drug crazed Negro script trotted out too many times when a police officer kills a black person. Uh, your piece is is compelling. Um, and before I even get to the substance of the piece, I want to ask you. How frustrating it is for you to have to pay and give so much detail because this is what you did. You took the, you, you broke it apart piece by piece, what was in his system, the the amounts that were in his system and and the effects that it could have, didn't have, and probably would have had. You know, you just analyzed the entire picture. It, does it does it not frustrate you to have to do so much due diligence to a a narrative that was never meant to be in good faith in the first place?
2: Yeah, you know, I think of my sister Toni Morrison when she said, um, "The real work of racism is to keep you busy." Uh, So, first they say you have no culture, and then you spend two decades proving that you have culture. Then they say your head is shaped funny. Then you spend three decades proving that your head is not funny. Uh, But that's what this is really about. You know, I really would love being in my lab. Uh, training students about neuroscience and drugs and this sort of stuff. I would really love just to do that, but you can't because of these kind of narratives that go on. And then it takes me weeks to write a piece like that, and takes me away from my students, from my children, from my family, from all of this kind of thing. That's the real work of racism: to keep people like me busy. You know, even Martin Luther King said. He was just a preacher and he just wanted to go back to his church. But you can't because of racism. Um, And so um, they have kept me busy. Uh, I've been told I can't curse, so I have to make sure I watch my mouth. But it's frustrating such that you want to curse. So people really understand what's going on because I have boys, a teenager and young 20, uh, 20 some year old. And so I know. These narratives, these stories will be used against them. They are being used against my nephews. They, you know, they've been used against my friends, against me. And so it is maddening.
0: yeah, yeah, that's what I felt. As I read it, as as I read your piece, I'm like, we should not have to give this much attention to detail to a disingenuous bad faith argument that has been debunked so many times but not on behalf of black people and so you have had to pick up your your rhetorical sword and to come into battle on behalf of black people because we know i mean if if you look at at, at the things that were in his system right this is this is not even a busy saturday night for some of our white friends right this is this is like low level stuff that is not but it does not stop the authorities from using this narrative to protect one of their own. Talk about how this is a shield. This is a shield not only around white supremacy, but this is a shield around the police state, which is exacerbated in the black community.
2: Yeah, it is. It's a defense that works, and it's a defense that once you trout it out, they are no longer questioned. Let me just give another recent example. We can think about this young brother. Laquan McDonald from Chicago. This brother was shot 16 times as he walked away from the police. And there was dash cam footage. But the public didn't get this footage until the citizens of Chicago, the activists, got it through a Freedom of Information request. But they shot this cat 16 times. And the guy who did this was paid by the Chicago City of Chicago for an entire year before he was brought to justice, only because the tape was now made available. Mm. But the the thing was, uh, the coroner said Laquan McDonald had PCP in his system, and therefore it shut down any sort of Concerned that the cop might have did something wrong, yeah. as if PCP is it absolves any sort of responsibility on behalf of the police.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is a, a very effective tool that we've seen used in in case after case after case, um, and and I, I'm not sure. If this is something that you said in our conversation right now, or if it's something that I read, but you refer to how historically they've used the 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 idea that black men own cocaine are almost like super soldiers, and that they would issue out. Bigger weapons to come hunt us down because if we have cocaine in our system, that we are somehow more powerful. Speak on that very quickly, and then I want to ask you one or two more questions.
2: Sure. So back in the, I guess, the early 1900s, there was this rumor started by Southern police officers that they were moving away from the 32 caliber weapon to the 38 caliber weapon because they said that. Black men in the South who were on cocaine could not be stopped by 32 caliber weapons, and so they describe in the New York Times. In fact, they describe how the sheriff shot his brother six times in the heart, who was on cocaine and couldn't stop him. And so, the Southern police forces moved away from the 32 caliber weapon to the 38 caliber weapon. But this is the thing: is is that that argument. Is used even today in order for police to use bigger caliber weapons. They say somebody was on PCP, and when on PCP, you have to shoot them 28 times. All this stuff is just nonsense, but you hear these arguments even today. And they have their roots, as I said. In American racism.
0: We only have a few seconds left here, but the Democratic Party has decided not to legalize marijuana as a part of their platform. Could you just, for about 20 seconds, tell me what your thoughts are about that in context of everything?
2: Well, you said I couldn't curse. I'd really like to tell you what I think about that in curse words. I mean, it's (laughs) ridiculous. I mean, it's really ridiculous. I mean, we have 11 states that have legalized marijuana for recreational purposes. And 33 in DC have legalized it for medical purposes and it, the Democrats are behind. And there's also, it's inconsistent with the Declaration of Independence, for example, if anybody knows anything about it, where it says that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So long as we don't interfere with others to do the same using marijuana or any other drug to do so is consistent with the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And the Declaration of Independence says that government should be created to ensure these rights, preserve these rights, not restrict them. So the Democrats, um, don't get me started with the Republicans, (laughs) but the Democrats have, they've they've blown it there and that's not surprising, they always have.
0: Dr. Hart, I appreciate your time. I understand your frustration and and there's some words that need to be said about this. So maybe I'll get you on my podcast and you just let them rip. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining.
2: You have to have me back, man. I have a book coming out in January. I'll be back.
0: Absolutely.